Salvation Now podcast, where you'll discover and be equipped with keys from the Word of God that will pave the way to God's unlimited blessing in your life. Now, here's your host, Evangelist T.J. Malkanji. Let's get straight in it. The seven spiritual disciplines you must never neglect. I want to read, before we move on, out of Matthew chapter 28, and it's a scripture that many of you, if you grew up in church especially, many of you are very familiar with. Matthew chapter 28 and verse 18, Jesus' final words, pretty much, before he ascends, that gravity loses hold on him, and he begins to ascend to heaven, which we read about in Acts chapter 1. This is what he said, Jesus came and spoke to them saying, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Verse 19, go therefore. And so there's this initiative that you must take as a disciple of Christ. He didn't say, now just watch and I'll do it all. He said, go therefore, go, move. I heard Reinhard Bonnke, evangelist Reinhard Bonnke say it this way, God does not sit with sitters, God does not sleep with sleepers, God goes with goers, he moves with movers. He said, go therefore and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the ends of the ages. Jesus said, now that I'm going, we have a task to go and make disciples. You yourselves are my disciples. Now you got to go and make disciples. What is a disciple? I am the fulfillment of that verse right there. Had it not been someone going and telling me about Jesus, I would not be a disciple. You are the fulfillment of that of that 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 scripture that Jesus spoke before he ascended to heaven. Had someone not told you about Jesus, you would not be a disciple. But now that someone has informed you and Jesus, the Bible says Jesus said, flesh and blood cannot reveal this to you. Someone can inform you of the gospel, but it's my Father in heaven that opens up your eyes to see the truth of the gospel. Once that happened, you entered in to that category that the Bible calls disciples of Christ. You are a disciple of Christ. I want you to write that in the comment section. I am a disciple of Jesus. I am a disciple of Jesus. What does a disciple do? What does the word disciple even mean? Well, we actually get the word discipline from disciple. When a, what does a, dis, a disciple do? A disciple subscribes to a list of disciplines from his teacher or from his master. In this case, our teacher and master is Jesus, and the disciplines that we subscribe to is his word and what he's instructed, which I'm gonna go through the seven specific disciplines that Jesus is called every disciple to sign up for. The word disciple in the Greek is mathetes, mathetes, which literally means to be a learner, a pupil, meaning a student, or a disciple. It's one who follows the teachings of another. It's one who is uh, intimately acquainted with the teachings of someone else and has given themselves over, surrendering everything, Surrendering their reputation, surrendering their finances, surrendering everything for the vision of the teacher. 
The word disciple is not found anywhere in the Old Testament. That might be a shock to some of you, but it's not found anywhere in the Old Testament. You can read the entire Old Testament. You will not find the Hebrew word disciple anywhere in there. In the New Testament, Jesus shows up on the scene and it's mentioned 269 times in the Gospels and in the book of Acts. Mainly, in the, there's no mention of it in the epistles. It's in the Gospel and the book of Acts. Every time Jesus talks about discipleship, he stresses. There's always this stressing, there's this urgent uh, matter that Jesus conveys that if you want to be my disciple, you have to forsake everything. A mark of discipleship, a mark of a true disciple of Jesus Christ is that they have forsaken all to follow Jesus. I want to read Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14. See, there's a lot of Christians, a lot of Christians, I'd say even the majority, that have left nothing. They've sacrificed nothing to follow Jesus. There are very few Christians that have sacrificed something to follow Jesus. And then there's a very minimal amount of people in Christendom, in the kingdom of heaven, that have truly forsaken everything to follow Jesus. And the reason being is that people who refrain or are, feel hindered in just laying everything on the altar, much of the time they've been told, they've been spoken to, they've been taught that if, you know, when you give everything to Jesus, when you, when you lay it all on the altar, in this life, you'll have nothing. You'll be, the wor- you'll be the least of the least. You'll have to struggle all through life, but one day in heaven, it'll be, ma- it'll be worth it. And they've been taught that, you know, going the Jesus route is, is the worst path of life. But it's like an investment. One day, it'll be worth it. When in reality, yes, I do Understand, Jesus did say that the way of life is narrow and few are they that find it. However, once you get into the way of life, Proverbs 4.18 says the path of the just shines brighter and brighter even unto that perfect day. Meaning it's an ever increasing path. It is a path of greatness. It, greatness. it is a path of blessing. Yes, there are things that you have to sacrifice and give up and forsake along the way. But Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, and I want to preface preface everything I'm saying today on Mark chapter 10, verses 28 to 30. Jesus said these words. He said, anyone that has lost their family or their house or their land or property or children or wife for my sake and for the gospel's sake, Jesus said, he will in this lifetime receive a hundredfold everything that he's lost. And he goes on to list houses, land, property with persecution. You will have persecution. You will be, Jesus said, you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. I think we're seeing that. First of all, I want to give God thanks. I want to give God glory before we move on to anything else for what just happened in the last week. The overturning of Roe v. Wade, the, the, the wrongful verdict that happened 50 years ago has been overturned, which bans the 
pretty much the federal government in getting involved. It's, it's brought on to a state level now. Abortion is on a state level, and the federal government cannot control the state's legislation, legislative abilities to either ban abortion or allow for abortion. And that one victory, I mean, if you could put the hand emojis in the comment section, that was an insane victory. That was like a book of Acts victory. Nobody, if you would have asked me three years ago or two years ago, if Roe v. Wade would ever be overturned, I'd say probably one day, but I don't know if we'll see it in our lifetime. We just saw one of the great, we just saw Goliath get his head knocked out by the stone of David, and now the Philistines are running. What you're seeing right now on TikTok, on Instagram, you're seeing all these celebrities come out and they're angry, and they're literally manifesting. We're seeing high-profile celebrities manifesting on social media, I saw this news reporter that literally just started yelling as she was doing her news set and lost her marbles. There's people that are, there was this one TikTok, she just was yelling into the camera and you can see her eyes were full of the devil. The devil's angry. The Bible says the wicked will see God act and they will gnash at it with their teeth, but they'll melt away like wax before the fire. They will indeed want to do something about it, but the desire of the wicked shall perish. And that's what we're seeing. We have seen, I, I prophesied this on Friday night when I did my prayer service at church. I prophesied that this is the first domino to fall that will result in a series of victories a series of triumphs for the, for the church of the Lord Jesus Christ until the rapture of the church takes place. These are the days of the glory church, the glory days of the church. These are the days of heaven on earth. These are the days where like Samson, he killed more Philistines in his last moments of time than he did in his entire life. We're, the church is gonna see and witness more victories in our last moments of time before we're raptured up and the church age ends than we've seen in our entire history on the earth. And that's why I always tell people, it's an amazing time to be alive. It's an amazing time. We were born for such a time as this. And that's why a broadcast like this is more important than ever. Because you have to learn how to not neglect the spiritual disciplines that are going to keep your fire ablaze. A, a, a that are going to keep your fire lit up and hot. Because Jesus said in the last days... There were 10 virgins that went out. Five did not have oil in their lamp. Their fire went out. They didn't keep up the spiritual disciplines necessary. They were not spiritually diligent. And their fire went out. We are in the last days. We are in the final moments of time. The church, ends, church age is about to end. Jesus is coming back for his church soon. And... I don't want to be the five foolish that carried no oil in their lamp. That the Bible says the master came at midnight and he blew the trumpet and he said prepare and the five that were foolish were not prepared to welcome the messiah when he came were not prepared they weren't putting their hand to the plow they had neglected spiritual duties and tasks they were helter skelter christians they were distracted and they had their focus all misaligned and as a result the bible says they didn't make heaven i don't want that to be you 
Yes, we put our trust. It's by grace through faith that we receive Christ and we get saved. But once you're saved, there's a series of things that the scripture instructs us to do so that we can walk in a manner worthy of the gospel unto which we were called. Colossians chapter 1 says it this way. Paul praying for the Colossians. He says, I pray that God would give you the wisdom and the understanding so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the gospel, bearing fruit in every season. You know, when I posted what I just said, that Roe v. Wade being overturned is, gonna, is uh, the first domino to fall, and we're going to see a series of victories and stuff. You had Christians come on my Instagram account and say, actually, no, it's just people are just going to hate us more. People are just going to, as if like it's, as if like the end days is just going to be the church dwindling down, waning out, the fire getting very, very low and dim until Jesus finally comes and rescues us. That's not how the Bible describes the last days. The last days, yes, darkness will be on the earth. Yes, gross darkness will even overtake the people. But the Bible says, unto you, which is Christians he's speaking to, Isaiah 60, arise and shine. This is the day where our light, as the days get darker for the world, the light of the church is gonna shine brighter and brighter. And unto you, arise and shine, for my glory, God said, will be seen on you. Habakkuk prophesied, saying in the last days, in a little while, I will shake the heavens, I will shake the earth, and I will shake the sea. And everything that can be shaken will be shaken. That's what's happening. Everything that can be shaken. The abortion industry got shaken, and the pillars fell down. You're going to see it's going to overflow into the marriage, the definition of marriage, homosexual marriage and all that. You're going to see it's going to overflow into that area. And everything that can be shaken is going to be shaken. But there's one thing on the earth that will never be shaken. And it is the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Which church, which body you belong to. That's why Hebrews 12 says it this way. You have come to Mount Zion. You have come and you have received a kingdom that can never be shaken. That's why I'm here to tell you. The days will get darker for the world. But unto you who belong to the church. You who have said, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. The days that are coming are not going to be days of, of, of extreme, you know, hardship and suffering and lack and all that. Just like Israel, when they were in Egypt, there was darkness over all the land of Egypt. But to the Israelites in Goshen, there was more than enough light. The plagues didn't touch them. Not even a dog barked its mouth against the Israelites. That's going to be the story for the church on the earth. That's why the Bible says in the last days, there are going to be people that will see, will see the church. And they will know that there are people called by the name of the Lord. There's going to be a distinction. There's going to be a distinction, a mark of exemption that God is putting on you and your family. While the world is saying there's a casting down, you and your family will be lifted up. So let your light shine, Jesus said before men, in such a way that men will see your good works. They'll see the power of God at work in you, and they'll glorify your Father in heaven as a result. So that's why I'm doing this today. Because I want you to be a part of that end time army. I want you to be a part of those that are spiritually diligent and not spiritually negligent. And for you to do that, I said it before, the marker of a disciple is first and foremost, you have to forsake everything. Matthew chapter 4, Jesus comes to his disciple, well, he comes to Peter and 
Andrew, James, and John, and he says, follow me, and I will make you fishers of of men. The Bible says immediately they left their nets with their father in the boat, and they followed Jesus. They followed Jesus. Make a decision today. You know, the Bible says in John 6, 66 through 69, that Jesus, he began to challenge the people. He started to talk about his body, his flesh indeed, it's food indeed, and his blood is drink indeed. And he's talked, talked about how um, he that eats of my flesh has my life in him, that I am the true bread of heaven. And the people, the, the Jewish people of that time, the Bible says from that time onward, many of his disciples, so people that followed him, The entire time, up until that statement, up until Jesus said those words, the Bible says they walked away and they followed him no more. They followed him no more. And Jesus said to the 12, do you also want to go away? You know what Simon replied? Where am I going to go? Where am I going to go? You see, I, I was talking to someone recently and I said, either God is real or he's not real. Either God's word is, is true and God has integrity to back it up or it's all fake and false and you might as well go eat, drink, and be merry. Either Jesus rose from the dead or he's still in that tomb and we are of all men most to be pitied. Either Jesus was a maniacal liar, a lunatic, and to be considered as the greatest pathological liar and apocalyptic preacher of all history or he truly was who he said he was And if that's the case, which I believe it is, and I know it to be, where else can we go? Jesus, uh, Paul said in in, uh, 1 Corinthians 15, if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, we're of all men most to be pitied. But if he did, where else can we go? Where else should we turn? That's why when you understand that, when you get to to the base of it all, when you get to the very foundation of what I just said, It's not hard to leave that boyfriend that's not saved, that you're sleeping with, that's pulling you away from Christ, and your mind is just, well, maybe if I just stick with him a little longer, he'll get saved. It ain't gonna happen. It's not, that doesn't, that's the exception. It's not the norm. When you understand that the urgency of the hour, it becomes a lot easier to quit cheating on your taxes. It becomes a lot easier to quit watching those Netflix movies that glorify the devil and not God. It becomes a lot easier to forsake all. It becomes a lot easier for those of you that feel the call into ministry, but you're afraid that maybe you know God won't provide or you're afraid that you know it won't take off and you're going to lose your job and then we're going to be we're going to be left empty-handed. It becomes a lot easier knowing that what hour it is right now to forsake everything, put your hand to the plow and run the race that is set before you. That's why Paul said, I don't count my life as any account dear to myself. I don't consider my life as anything dear to myself. I don't hold it dear. I don't cherish it. I don't cherish. He's not saying he never enjoyed life. I'm sure he enjoyed fish. I'm sure he enjoyed fishing maybe. I'm sure he enjoyed building things. He was a tent maker by trade. I'm sure he had some, he liked a nice steak once in a while. I'm not saying just make life gray and strip the fun of life. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that Paul understood that every pleasure of life takes a back seat to spiritual disciplines and diligent knowing knowing that I have a race to run and I have a course to finish he said I I do it all with joy to finish my course with joy and finish the race well at the end of his life he writes to Timothy and says I have fought the good fight 
I have finished the race. I have won, I have won the race. In the future, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Hallelujah. It becomes easy when you get down to the foundation of it all. That's why Peter, Peter in Luke chapter 5 sees Jesus multi, I mean, they were fishing all night, nothing happened. Jesus says, let down your boats in the deep. Let down your nets for a catch. Jesus, Peter looked at him and said, I've done it all night. I've caught nothing, but at your word, I'll do it. He did it. The moment he saw the abundance, he, he saw that this was God in the flesh on the earth. From that moment onward, he never looked backwards. He said, I'll for, I'll, I, if everyone is made to stumble, I'll never stumble. Obviously, he didn't have the Holy Ghost at that time, so he stumbled. But nonetheless, his heart was connected to Christ. That's what a true disciple, a true disciple of Christ forsakes every earthly thing and makes heaven their priority. Listen to this. I was going to read this. Luke chapter 14, 25. Now great multitudes went with Jesus and he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his father or his mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, his own life also, he can't be my disciple. Now, when Jesus said, hate my father and mother, the Bible obviously says if you hate someone whom you see with your eyes, then how can you say you love God whom you've not seen? He's not talking about the hate as in like, I can't stand these people, I don't tolerate them. He's saying in comparison with your love for God, everyone, it should be like, everyone should take a back seat. Everyone should be not number one priority. Every, no matter how dear someone is to you, your love for God is number one priority. God's word, God's instructions, what God tells you to do is number one priority. We don't consult with flesh and blood. We don't, uh, we don't allow the influence of flesh and blood to impede on what God has said. God's word is the final word. It is our final authority on every matter in life. That's what he was saying. He was saying, if you have to, in relationship with your love for God, you have to like hate brother and sister. You have to hate. He's not saying hate them as in treat them badly and you know pray they don't make heaven. He's saying that it's going to seem like hate for other people. It's going to seem like disdain for other people. But it's your love for God that's driving you to operate a certain way that you have to be ready to abandon ship on any earthly matter. You have to be ready. You know, there's, you'd be surprised how many people are like, well, you know, we're in, a, we're in a town right now. There's no good church here, but my family lives here. And, you know, our, I've all, you know, our family's always been here. We want to be close to family. That's what he meant. You're going to raise up your children in a garbage church that has no fire, no people getting saved. It's just a country club for believers. All because your family lives there? That's exactly what Jesus was saying. You have to hate Hate your father and mother in comparison to your love for God. Your love for God should be so overwhelmingly strong that nothing, nothing, not even family relations will keep you from, from putting your hand to the plow and keeping on plowing. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The cross of Christ is not sickness and disease. The cross of Christ is not depression and anxiety. The cross, you know what? You know when people start preaching that my cross is depression, all that? It's people who've never even taken a day to actually bear the real cross, which is the mandate we have to bear the gospel message, to bring the gospel message to, to, to everyone and anyone that we'd come in contact with. That's the true cross. The cross is, like Paul said, the gospel is foolishness to them that are perishing. 
It, they hate you for it. They crucified Jesus for it. They stoned Paul for it. They beheaded Paul for it. He lost his life. Peter lost his life and was hung upside down on a cross because of it. Peter wasn't struggling with depression throughout his life. He, he had joy exceedingly and full of glory. The cross is not the devil's doing. The cross is the responsibility that we have as the church to bring the gospel to people, to give an invitation and a presentation to Christ despite, despite what's popular in your day. Despite it all. It's, it's suffering the persecution for being called by the name of Jesus Christ. It's like Simon of Cyrene. The Bible says he bore the cross of Christ. He carried the cross. He was the, Jesus bore the cross, and then when he was too tired to do it, the Bible says they commanded, the centurion commanded Simon of Cyrene to, to take the cross. That's what it is. It's, it's bearing the reproach of Christ. It's bearing the reproach of Christ because we're committed to his word and we're committed. That's what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5. He said, blessed are you when you're persecuted and when people say all kinds of evil things against you for my name's sake. You're not cursed. Blessed are you for you are children of my father in heaven and like manner the prophets before you were persecuted and great will be your reward in heaven. The Bible says, on their behalf, the name of Jesus is blasphemed. But when they blaspheme you because of your allegiance to me, you are glorifying God in heaven. The Bible says that the apostles, they counted themselves blessed to have, have suffered shame for the name of Jesus. That's the cross. And if you want to be a disciple of Christ, you not only have to forsake the world and sinful living, you have to be ready to bear the cross. The humiliation, the reproach on, uh, in the sight of the world for allegiance to the kingdom of heaven. For which of you intending to build a tower does not sit down first and count the cost, count the cost, count the cost. That's the cost of discipleship. Whether he has enough to finish, lest after he's laid the foundation, is not able to finish. All who see it begin to mock him and said, this man to begin to build, but he was not able to finish. And the reason why he was not able to finish is because he didn't count the cost of what you now must do being a born-again child of God. The spiritual disciplines that are going to guarantee that you endure to the end. That you endure to the end. Discipleship is self-denial. He said he must deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Denial of self deals with the crucifixion of the flesh. The Bible says we have crucified our flesh with Christ Jesus on that cross. Many Christians, a lot of Christians understand that part. But then when it comes to picking up the cross, a lot of people have not been taught properly as to what that means. Picking up the cross is not suffering with a bad, you know, you had a hard week. That's, it's just my cross. No, picking up the cross is bearing the burden of bringing the gospel to your generation regardless of the reproach, the persecution, the insults, and all the evil that's going to be thrown against you because of it. You know, there's a cross to ministry. If you're a minister watching right now, there's a cross to ministry. And the cross to ministry is not... Uh, you know, 
well, you know, I lost my family because of the ministry, but it's my cross, you know. No, that's, that's negligence. You neglected your own family. And if you can't take care of your own family, the Bible says you shouldn't be in any point of leadership in the body of Christ. If you don't know how to care for your own family, the Bible says, how can you be faithful in the house of God? The Bible says if you don't care for your own household, you are worse than an infidel. You're worse than an unbeliever. So the cross is not, you know, I lost my family, but I know I have a crown in heaven. No, you were negligent. And, the, and uh, <laughs> that's enough I'll say about that. But the cross to ministry is work. You look at the, the life of Jesus. Jesus didn't just bear his cross when he had the actual cross on his back. Jesus was bearing the cross throughout the three and a half years of ministry that he, he preached in. It, it was, he said the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. He had no place to even relax. The Bible says he just wanted to get away to pray for a little while in Mark chapter 1. But wherever he went, they proclaimed it in the city and they came to him from every direction. He couldn't catch a break. The disciples shared in the same cross. The Bible says that they had no time, not even, even, to, not even time to eat. And Jesus said, come away and rest for yourselves. And when they went to a deserted place, they found them there. Then you look at the, I mean, you look at the, the, the schedule that Paul took. Paul didn't have down times. People think that, you know, oh, the minister, you know, they do it to escape work. A lot of ministers do. But ministry, I heard a preacher say it this way, ministry is spelled W-O-R-K. Ministry is spelt work. You know, as an evangelist, a lot of people, you know, I've, I've already abandoned to it. I know that I'm, I'm an evangelist. I'm, that means travel. That means go. That means go anywhere God tells you to go. That means keep a rigorous travel schedule. A lot of people look at that and they're like, I can't believe you do that. I don't know how you do it. It's a cross that you have to bear. And you know what? God gives you grace to bear the cross. I enjoy traveling. I have a good time traveling. And then when I'm traveling and I'm preaching somewhere, I'm not doing a 7.30 meeting so I can get out by 8.30 because I have four more nights of this and, you know, I don't want to wear thin. I give everything every night because it's my cross. It's the cross Jesus has given me as an evangelist to bear. And I enjoy doing it. I love seeing people light up with the fire of God. I love seeing people that came in crippled, leaving, walking. There was a lady once I was preaching in a church she came in, she had a nervous breakdown that day. Her body gave out. She had to be carried in by two people. Her legs weren't working. She was just a, a blop of human flesh. And they sat her in my meeting as I was preaching, without even ministering to her. She came back alive, strength returned into her body. She comes to the altar, I lay hands on her, power of God hits her, and she left running that night. She would have continued, she would have had to go to a hospital, maybe gone on IV, who knows what. Just the preaching of the word going out revitalized her body. When I see that, that's my reward. That's why Paul, he never talked about, you know, it's hard suffering for the cross, it's hard suffering for Jesus. Notice how there's his, he never really, even when he talks about his persecutions, he says, I probably shouldn't get into this because there's no point in doing it. But he says, I'd rather boast about my infirmities and my weaknesses because there the power of God rests on me a lot more uh, perfectly. Paul, every time he brought up, uh, his, his missionary journeys. He always reported the good things. Read the book of Acts. And they reported all the things God had done through him. And he reported everything that God had accomplished and how he had opened up the door to the Gentiles. Paul saw the reward. He said to the Philippians, you are my crown. You are my reward. You are my rejoicing. That's what I see. A lot of ministers, they hide from work. 
They don't bear the cross of ministry because they, they just want to, they want to get the crown without the cross. There are no crown bearers in heaven that were not cross bearers here below. There are no crown wearers in heaven that were not cross bearers here below. If you want a crown, you got to bear the cross. Paul always focused on the crown and that's why the cross, it, it, it didn't, he said, I don't, I don't consider my life anything dear to myself. The Holy Spirit was testifying through many prophets, Paul, when you go to Jerusalem, they're going to bind you and they're going to arrest you and they're going to ship you off to Rome. And the disciples actually tried to prevent him from going to Jerusalem. And you know what, what, what Paul did? The Bible says he wept before them. He said, what is this that you are doing? I'm not only ready to be bound at Jerusalem. I'm ready to give my life if need be for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Didn't faze him. He, he had already totally abandoned. It's, there's the law of total abandonment if you want to be in the ministry. Totally abandoned. I am his vessel. I'm not my own. I've been bought with a price. This body is to be used to glorify Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I must work while it is yet day. You know, I was in Peru. We had 1,500 people there. I laid hands on 1,500 people every single night that I was there. Why? Because that's the ministry. I'm not trying to get out of my service early so I can go and catch a restaurant that's good that's open before 9 p.m. You know how many ministers? They tailor the services down to one hour because that's, that's all they, they, they want to do. They don't, they're not interested in a move of the Holy Ghost. They just want to give the people enough so that they'll come back next week, but not enough where they'll be changed. So they give the bare minimum. When I do, I give it all. I'll lay hands on everyone. I'll pray for everyone after. I'll, I'll do everything and anything because for this cause was I born. Jesus said, I must work while it is yet day. So don't confuse the cross with sickness and disease when the cross is actually the work of the ministry. And then if you're a minister and you teach that the cross is sickness, disease, and depression, and anxiety, and despondency, and despair, all because you've neglected the actual cross, you're in the wrong. You're in the wrong. Elisha surrendered everything. When Elijah tapped on his shoulder and said, follow me, he surrendered everything. So let's get in. I did this broadcast first and foremost because uh, I was reading Psalm 42 and the Bible says, my tears have been for my food day and night while they continually say of me, where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me for I used to go with the multitude to the house of God with the voice of joy and praise. He said, my tears have been my food day and night. While they're continually saying to me, where is your God? When I remember these things, I pour out my soul within me. This is what I'm getting at. For, this is what the psalmist said. For I used to go with the multitude to the house of God. He neglected going to the house of God. And what happened? His tears were his food day and night. It launched him into a state of despair. It put him in a place of hardship because he neglected spiritual discipline. The Bible says in Hebrews 2, 3, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? If we neglect as believers what we've been called to do, the Bible says you will not escape. 
You won't escape. The Bible says an idle person will suffer hunger. If you are idle in your walk with God, you are setting yourself up for disaster. Neglect brings disaster. Neglect is a magnet for disaster. You go to a gym twice a week, just for one week. You go twice in one week. You look in the mirror, you're not going to see any type of major difference. You won't see anything different. You might look exactly like you looked like before you went to the gym those two times. Because it's not in going to, and there's a lot of people that they, they do this for a little, the seven things I'm about to talk about, they do it for a season. They do it for a week or two weeks or maybe even a month. They don't have any results that they can measure right away. And so the reaction is they give it all up. And then it just brings them more disaster and more torment and more hardship and more trial and more problems and more everything. If I just brush my teeth twice a year, I'd lose my teeth. What do you do? You brush them twice a day for every day that you're alive to guarantee that you have nice pearly whites. And when you brush them, you don't notice anything different, but it's that constant disciplined approach in brushing your teeth that gives you the type of teeth, the mouth that you so desire. Consistency is greater than intensity. There's a lot of people, oh, I got a dentist appointment coming up. They go, and I, we were all there as kids. I was there. We've all been there. You had a dentist appointment coming out. You'd go and brush your teeth as great as you can so that the dentist doesn't notice anything. When in reality, that x-ray they do on your mouth, it goes beyond your brushing. And they go to the very root of your tooth. And the root of the tooth is actually starting to rot. You can still have pearly whites on the outside, but the root of the tooth could be affected. And your little intense drama before you went to the dentist to try and just redeem the years of neglect, the days and months of neglect, isn't going to solve it. They're going to find they're going to locate the root problem of it all. And they're going to they're gonna say, you've not been brushing your teeth twice a day. Well, no, aren't they white? Yeah, but look, you've got cavities all around here. And you got, you're going to have to do a root canal. We might have to replace that tooth because it ain't functioning right anymore. It's exactly how it is with spiritual things. Consistency is better than intensity. Going to the gym for nine hours straight is not going to whip you into shape. Going to a gym daily for 20 minutes over years is going to whip you into shape. There's a book that I recommend. It's by James Clear. It's called Atomic Habits. Atomic Habits. By do uh, I, don't think, I don't think he's a doctor, but by James Clear. And he talks about how you have to find out the very small thing that you can do in a given day that if you'll repeatedly do that action and perform that action over time, you're going to actually develop excellence in that area. They, you know, Stephen King, the, the fictional um, uh, horror guy, which I don't recommend reading any of his books, but I heard that Stephen King, who is a renowned author in our generation, he used to, they asked him, how do you find time to do everything? How do you, how do you write so excellently? How do you always make these bestsellers on New York Times list? And he said, I just write, I write for three hours a day. I take my three most optimal times, optimal hours, my three most aware hours of my day, and I write. Whether I feel like writing or not, I just write. 
And he said, I've been doing that since before I was known as, as a, a, a famous writer. And he said, as I did that, three hours a day, over time, I developed excellence in writing. To the, I mean, you do something three hours a day for your entire life, for 20 years, you'll outperform people that went to university and all that. You will be excellent in that area. The Bible says, seest thou a man diligent in his work, he will stand before kings. So it's not going to the gym nine hours in a day that's going to whip you into shape. It's doing something diligently and consistently over time that's going to develop your spirit man to the point where you will be a strong Christian. I want you to write that in the comment section. I will be a strong Christian. We don't need weak Christians. We don't need flimsical Christians. We don't need roller coaster Christians. God wants to build consistency in you. God wants to build stability in you. God wants to build his very nature in you. You know, the Bible says we are predestined and called to be conformed to the image of his son. God wants you to be as stable as Jesus was on the earth. That stability is foreign to many Christians. They're up and down and all around. Feel one day, one day. Feel one thing one day. So they're, they're happy the next day. They're unhappy. She throws them all off. And there's no stability. There's no consistency. There's no routine that they develop. They go to a revival service for a week. Feel the fire of God. Feel better than ever. And then the, the minister leaves. Revival week is finished. Back to Sunday to Sunday and the occasional Wednesday service. And then they get all out of whack. And they lose it all. And they go back to their ways. I want to show you through these seven spiritual disciplines how you can actually maintain, sustain, and grow in your most holy faith. I'm tired. I'm tired of Christians catching the fire. I go to a church and then six months later I go back to the church. Hey, where's Eddie? Uh, Eddie, you know, he was really good for three months, but then, you know, he, he took his foot off the pedal. You know, when you get on a highway, you hit that pedal and it acts as an impetus to generate force and, and velocity in your car so that you can pick up on that on-ramp to the speed where you can actually merge onto the highway and catch the speed of the highway, 100 kilometers an hour, 60 miles an hour if you're in the States. Revival meetings are geared at giving you that, that initial jolt, that initial uh, motivation, that initial impetus that generates this stride. But if I got on the highway having slammed, I mean, I put the pedal down to the metal, and I got on the highway, and I was doing 130, I was doing 90 miles an hour, and then I just let, I was going quick, I let my foot off the pedal, and just tried to coast with what, what I had uh, generated on the on-ramp. It wouldn't be long until I've lost all speed. And I'm just, if I have an automatic car, you're just going at two or four kilometers an hour that uh, your gearbox is allowing you to do. It wouldn't be long. I'd lose all that. How does a person who gets on the highway maintain the speed? Every so often, he puts his pedal down a little. And he doesn't go and floor it. He doesn't have to anymore. He just puts a little applied force. Just a little bit of applied force. That's what God's going to do for you today. This broadcast is going to act as an on-ramp 
generator of speed. God's going to put a grace and a wind in your spirit to run the race that is set before you with diligence and boldness and endurance. But what I'm going to share with you today, you'll be able to apply it daily because they're all practical things. You'll be able to apply it daily and it will act as that little soft touch of the, of, of the pedal every so often that'll guarantee that you maintain that speed and you continue in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. So let's go through it. Seven spiritual disciplines. Number one, number one, prayer and fasting. Prayer and fasting. The Bible says that we are to pray without ceasing. Colossians 4.2 says, continue earnestly in prayer, being vigilant in it. If you're not vigilant in prayer, prayer is where you get your eyes spiritually so that you can see what's going on. The disciples neglected prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. And that's why they did not see what was going on. Jesus said, you're sleeping. Could you not pray with me one hour? You guys are sleeping. And now the hour has come. The Son of Man will be betrayed. They couldn't see it. That's why they weren't praying. They didn't know what Jesus was about to do. And because they had no spiritual sight, because of their neglect of prayer, they weren't ready for the hour. They all abandoned. They all forsook. They talked a big talk. Even if all abandon you, we will never abandon you. They talked a big talk, but when push came to shove, they had no, they had no power, no stamina, spiritual stamina. That's what prayer does, is it builds a spiritual stamina in you so that you're found standing. Da- Daniel, in the book of Daniel, he prayed twice a day. When they said, don't pray anymore, he prayed regardless. He never neglected his spiritual duty. That's why when they threw him in the lions, then he can sleep. If you'll pray when others are sleeping, you can sleep while others are praying. If you'll pray when others are sleeping, you can sleep while others are praying. There's a rest that comes on you. Prayer is like spiritual oxygen. The Bible instructs us that we are to fan into flame the gift that God has given us. There's a fire God has put in your spirit, man. But you have the responsibility of keeping it bright and hot. And the way you do that is by adding the oxygen of prayer. Any fire needs to be deprived of oxygen before it goes out. That's how you you take a, a fire out. You deprive it of oxygen because oxygen feeds the fire. Prayer feeds the fire of God on your spiritual altar, on the altar of your heart. So to not pray is a risk. You risk losing that urgency of the end times to get the gospel out. To not pray is a risk. You're risking losing the strength required to put your hand to the plow and keeping on plowing. You know, Ephesians, the church of Ephesus, in Revelation chapter 2, Jesus rebukes them and says, you've left your first love. I guarantee you, it began with a neglect of prayer. When you neglect praying, you leave that first love. You leave that intimacy that you had with God, and then you fail to do the works you did at first. The first step to backsliding is negligence of your prayer life. When you start to take your foot off the pedal of prayer, your whole spiritual life will come to a stop. Prayer is the engine room. If you want to see yourself as a cruise ship or a boat, the boat, and back in the days, I I remember watching the Titanic, and they used to take coals, and they would throw coals in the engine room to keep the engines going. When you don't pray, you're not adding any more coals in that engine room. The boat will stop. 
the boat will come to a stop. You risk to not pray, you risk falling into the temptation of the flesh. Jesus told his disciples, pray always that you enter not into temptation. Your spiritual life comes to a stop, and that's when the flesh takes over. And when the flesh takes over, the Bible says the deeds of the flesh are evident, which are anger, which are outbursts of wrath, which are envy, which is sexual immorality, which is adultery, which is jealousy, which is all these, and he lists on a bunch of things. Those are the deeds of the flesh. When you don't pray, your spirit man shrinks, your flesh man grows, and he takes over. That's why I'm not just talking about prayer. I'm saying prayer and fasting is a spiritual discipline that we must never neglect. Prayer and fasting. Because fasting is like, if prayer was C4, fasting is the detonator. Fasting complements prayer. Fasting is not a diet or a hunger strike. Because if all you do is fast and don't pray, you're just on a hunger strike. You're just on a diet. You might lose some weight, but that's all, all the benefit it'll yield you. It's prayer with fasting. When you do that, you're bringing, you know, the Bible says you have this treasure in this earthen vessel. God has put a treasure in you. When you fast and pray, the earthen vessel decreases and that treasure increases and it manifests through you the excellency of the power of God. Fasting brings your flesh into subjection to your spirit. Prayer and fasting. The Bible says, I, Paul saying, I have preached to others, but so that I'm not disqualified myself, I bring my flesh into subjection to the desires of my spirit, lest I should be called a castaway. Hallelujah. Prayer and fasting guarantees that you never grow dull spiritually, where you never get into a place where you're unmoved by the word. You, you know how many Christians tell me, you know, I go to this church, but I don't feel like the pastor feeds me. I don't feel like his word is feeding me. I don't feel like, I just feel like it's not, it's not blessing me anymore. When you fast and pray, you'll get something. You won't be unmoved by the preacher. You won't be unmoved by, you know, when you read scripture, it should move you. And when I get, I, I'm, not, I'm, I'm not exempt from this. Paul wasn't exempt. He said, I should be, lest I should be disqualified. I'm certainly not exempt from this. I notice when I feel spiritually dull, when I don't quite feel the weight on my preaching, when I don't quite feel the results that I want, when I don't quite feel that drive to pray anymore, I go on a fast and I pray and it, it like presses reset on my, on my, on my spirit. And that initial drive comes back. Fasting and prayer does that. It keeps your spirit, man, in dominion over, over your flesh to empower you to, uh, to have dominion over your flesh. Another thing prayer and fasting does is it keeps your spiritual compass working well. There are a lot of Christians that are like, I just feel lost. I don't know what to do in life. I don't know. If you'll give yourself to a life of prayer and fasting, your spiritual compass will be in tune to heaven's frequency and you'll you'll know that's why you have the greats they always they always knew what to do jesus all always knew what to do there's great men of god where they they don't they don't even have to pray for a matter because they've prayed and fasted and they've aligned their spirit with heaven's frequency whenever the problem arrives they just speak they don't even have to pray. They've, prayer prepares your spirit to receive instructions in the day of trouble. Hallelujah. 
I, I, and I, st- I tell you, as you engage in prayer and fasting, that's what it'll do for you. You won't be the lost Christian that's always, always backed into a corner, always wondering what's the way out. As you pray and fast, God will prepare your spirit, man, so that no matter what comes against you, you'll know, you'll know the way to go. Number two is praise. Number two, spiritual discipline you must never neglect is praise and worship. Thanksgiving. The Bible says in Psalm 92, it is a good thing to give thanks unto the Lord, to sing praises to his name, O God most high. It's a good thing. The Bible says that praise from the righteous is beautiful. Hebrews chapter 13 says that we are to continually offer up unto God the sacrifice of praise. You know why it's called a sacrifice of praise? Because sometimes you don't want to praise. Sometimes you don't feel like praising. Sometimes it doesn't seem like there's any reason to praise. But the Bible says we're to offer up to God regardless of how we feel or what we're seeing. A sacrifice of praise. It's a discipline. I don't do thing disciplines when I feel like it or else it wouldn't be a discipline. I do disciplines daily regardless of what I feel, including praising God. David said, I will bless the Lord at all times. I will continually, I will continually bless his holy name. Psalm 103, I will bless the Lord with my soul. Oh, my soul. You know, he didn't say, I'll bless the Lord, oh, my flesh, when I feel like it. He said, I'll bless the Lord, oh, my soul. Why? Because your soul is your mind, and your mind is where you make decisions. Your spirit is saying, bless God. Your flesh is saying, you should complain about the problem. It's the, it, the decision lies in your soul to make the decision as to whether you're going to obey your spirit and bless God and obey the word of God to do that or your flesh and complain about the situation. That's why David said, bless the Lord, oh my soul. He was telling his, his soul, his soulical part of his being. He said, bless the Lord. Whether you feel like it, whether your emotions are in it or not, bless the Lord, oh my soul. And I tell myself, sometimes you got to look in the mirror and you got to tell yourself, praise God. You got to tell, you got to strengthen yourself. David encouraged himself in the Lord. Why do we do that? Because in his presence is fullness of joy. I just feel like I'm depressed. In his presence is fullness of joy. I've, I've seen many prayer warriors that are depressed. I've never seen a praise warrior that is depressed. I've seen many prayer warriors that are anxious, depressed, and downcast. I've never seen a prayer warrior that is depressed. A praise warrior, sorry. Praise warriors. Why? Because in his presence is fullness of joy. And praise is the passcode to the presence of God. The Bible says in Psalm 22, Thou, O Lord, inhabiteth the, inhabiteth the praises of your people. God inhabits. God's dwelling place is in your praise. So when you praise God, his presence invades the place. And when his presence comes, his presence comes with an entourage. You ever see a celebrity walk into an airport or something? They have an entourage. They have someone that carries their wallet, someone that's in charge with bookings and reservations. They have someone that's in charge with, uh, with, uh, with their schedule and all that. 
They have an entourage. When God shows up and his presence enters into a place, he comes with an entourage. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and self-control. If you're down today, do like the sons of Korah did in Psalm 42. The Bible says, why so downcast, O my soul? So he saw that his soul was down. He saw that he was a bit depressed. He said, why are you like that? It's abnormal for a Christian to be depressed. It's abnormal for a Christian to be down. It's abnormal for a Christian who believes in Jesus, that he's raised from the dead and is seated at the right hand of the Father, to be downcast. I'm not saying it might not ever come. Discouragement can knock on your door, but it's abnormal to live in discouragement. There are many Christians that are severely depressed, and I question whether they spend time in praise every day. I guarantee you they don't. It's impossible for suicidal thoughts to dwell in an atmosphere of praise. Just like a fish can't survive out of water, suicidal thoughts and depression cannot survive an atmosphere of praise. So lift up holy hands without wrath or doubting and say, I will bless. He didn't say, when I feel like it, I bless. I will. It's a matter of the will. Hope in God. He said, why so downcast, O my soul? Hope in God, for you shall praise him for the help of his countenance. I don't feel the presence of God anymore on me. Praise him. He dwells in praise. It's the cheapest entrance to the presence of God. Praise is an invitation God cannot turn down. And the good news is, is that no devil can survive God's presence. That's obvious. The devil cannot coexist with God. Light cannot coexist with darkness. And if praise ushers in God's presence, and you feel like your home is full of devils or whatever, put on praise music. I'm not talking about some of the stuff they produce these days. First of all, be very careful who you listen to and who... I don't care if they call themselves Christians. I don't care if they're signed by Bethel and signed by Hillsong. And signed, I don't care who they're signed by. You, you can see, I mean, there's a worship group called, and I'm going to call them out because they deserve to be called out. The drummer from a worship group called Maverick City Music, which they're wonderful musicians, amazing musicians, great voices. The drummer in the Roe v. Wade being overturned, uh, all that being, being done, the drummer posts a post saying, um, uh, people should be out, be out of the business of what women do with their body. Totally in opposition to Wolvie Ray being overturned. Well, you see that if that's the type of person they're allowing play music for them. You know, Dave, David said, the evildoer I will not allow in my presence. If they're not cutting that out of their, their worship group, they're not cutting that out of their, then you know that problem, it overflows even from the main leader to, to the, every other player of instrument in that band. I won't listen to music like that anymore. I won't. I won't. I simply won't. So don't put on music from people that are half depressed and sing about how hard life is. Put praise music on. You know, Bishop G.E. Patterson, I I, I mention him a lot. His music is the most encouraging music you can put on. It's old kind of Pentecostal music, and it's, it's uplifting. Talks about how Jesus is on the main line. Tell him what you want to encourage you to pray. Talks, you know, one of the songs, glory, glory, hallelujah, since I laid my burden down. None of this like, since I became a Christian, 
Sometimes his blessings in raindrops and all this depressing garbage that it's not scriptural. It's just a worship leader who had a bad week and wrote a song about it. First of all, praise and worship is not writing about you and your problems. Praise and worship is to be Christocentric about Christ, to revolve around Jesus, not about how crappy life has been for you. And if all you do is sing about your problems, you'll magnify your problems and multiply your problems. You praise your way out of problems. And you complain yourself into more problems. Choose to praise your way out of problems. Unhang your harp. Some of you have hung up your harp. Uh, you know, I don't feel like praising God. Let me put that up. Unhang your harp. Begin to sing praise to God with a high voltage praise. You know what happens? Psalm 114 says... When praise became their sanctuary, the mountains skipped like rams, the little hills like lambs. The Bible says that when praise became their sanctuary, the Red Sea turned back and Jordan fled. Tremble thou, O earth, at the presence of the Lord. The devil can keep you from praising God. He doesn't have to worry about you being effective against him or about you even leaving his grip. Praise is the passcode to the presence of God that when it's ushered in, it breaks every stronghold of the enemy. The Bible says, the living, yea, the living man will praise you, God. So when you're dead spiritually, that's when it, it's hard or impossible to praise. That's because the flesh has assumed a certain level of control over you, but the way you regain control, regardless of how you feel, is to lift up your hands and praise God. You'll see life enter back into your spirit. Number three, church attendance. So number one, spiritual discipline you must never neglect. Number one is, by, is prayer and fasting. Number two is praise and thanksgiving. Make your requests known to God with thanksgiving. Prayer and thanksgiving, praise and thanksgiving. Number three is church attendance. You got to be in church. You got to connect to a local body of believers. It's astonishing to me to see how many Christians who hate church. And they never say, I hate church. They just say it by not attending one. You know, I, church is in my heart, amen. That's not, that's not what church is. Ecclesia is the word that we have for church. And ecclesia means the gathering of the, of the called out ones. Even the synagogue in the ancient days. In Jewish synagogues today, the word synagogue means to gather. To, to the, you can't say church is not about being together. Church is in your heart. No, church literally means in the Greek ecclesia which means the gathering of the called out ones so how can you say it's not about gathering it's about having it in your heart when the Bible literally says I'm going to build my church I'm going to build my church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it Jasmine said something interesting I don't hate church but I just can't find a good biblically sound church in my area unfortunately this is going to and I love you Jasmine you're a faithful viewer and I'm not trying to rebuke you, but this is, this is, this is going to, I'm actually glad you brought that up because this is going to, I need to cover this. I don't build my life around a good job. I don't build my life around family. I don't build my life around a career. I build my life around a good Bible-based Holy Ghost church and everything else, everything else will pan out. Everything else will follow suit. Everything else will come into divine alignment. I find if there wasn't a good church in Montreal, the church I go to, I would have left Montreal long ago. I would have gone and planted myself somewhere else 
Because I don't want my children growing up in some dead, spiritless, Ichabod type of church. An erroneous doctrine coming from the pulpit. Where I have to every Sunday go home and say, son, I know you heard pastor say this and this. It's not right. Here's, I don't want to do that. I want to plant my feet in a home, in a church where I know people are going to get saved. I know people are going to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. I know that at least if someone doesn't get saved Sunday morning, invitation to receive Christ is happening every single Sunday morning. I build my house around a good church, not the other way. And that, I don't find a job and then find a good church after. I find a good church and then I find a job after. And if that means losing a job or losing, I know people are going to be offended by this, but if that means losing a job, I'd rather lose it. What's priority for you? If that means family members are going to get mad at you and they're never going to talk, talk with you and they don't invite you to reunions anymore because you left them. I just read it at the start of this broadcast. He who doesn't hate brother, sister, mother, father in comparison to loving me is not worthy of me. It's not worthy to be called my disciple. I would... Rather have no family, no job, no nothing, but know that I'm plugged into a good Holy Ghost church where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have the gift of God steered up in me and I'm going to have a place where I can plug in my talents and my skills to advance God's kingdom, where there's evangelistic projects that are being had every single year. Then uh, join some dead church where my children aren't going to want to have anything to do with God by the time they have the the the, the the, the ability to make that decision for themselves, where my children are literally, they've never been exposed to an actual revival meeting. So I would, I would literally pick up my, I'd locate a good church, find a good Holy Ghost church. There are many good, if you, if you need to text me and ask me where you live, I'll, I'll, I'll try and find one for you. But find a good Holy Ghost church. Find a biblically sound church. Don't, don't, do not do this mistake. Do not rely on online broadcasts alone. Online broadcasts are a great supplement, but they do not act as a substitute to actual church attendance. Online broadcasts are inadequate for demonstration, great for proclamation. We teach, we preach. But I can tell you, I do one week of meetings. If I, if, I did twos, if I did one week of meetings in a physical location with people to lay hands on, I'll see a hundred times more miracle signs and wonders than I did if I just did a whole week of online broadcasts. Not that we don't see healings manifest. Not that we don't see the power of God hit people. We do. We see it. We get people baptized in the Holy Ghost. God will do it. But it's inadequate for demonstration on a mass level. It's great for proclamation, but inadequate for demonstration. And we can never substitute actual church attendance on Sunday morning and whatever other services your church might have for online broadcasts. It's a great supplement. It is not a substitute. You need to plug into a church. The Bible says not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together as is the habit of some. But we should exhort one another daily so much the so more as you see the day of the Lord approaching. If a man married a woman and had kids, and then just visited every, you know, maybe every four months. That was it. What would happen to that family? That family would corrode. I said it before. Negligence 
attracts disaster. That family would have a terrible dynamic. If you're, you're married to Christ, you're married to his body, you're, you're connected to his body, you have to associate with it. Or there's going to be missing links in your relationship with God. You're never going to, I've never seen someone who neglects church attendance, someone who neglects meeting and assembling with the body of Christ on a weekly basis. I've never seen someone like that actually walk in dominion, actually walk in victory, actually be stable Christians. The Bible says they that plant their feet in the house of God shall flourish in the courts of God. But you have to plant your feet in the house of God if you want to flourish. You can't flourish without being planted. So continuing daily with one accord in the temple, they broke broke bread from house to house and they ate their bread with gladness and simplicity of heart, praising God, having favor with all the people. The Bible says the early church met even daily. They met daily. Acts 3.1, now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer. They had an hour of prayer that they met with. They met for daily, Acts 4.23. And being let go, Peter and John went to their own company. They assembled. Acts 4.31, and when they had prayed, the place where they had assembled together was shaken. There's power when the body of Christ comes together in one accord, in one mind, in one heart, in one purpose. Psalm 133 says how how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. It is like the oil which came down Aaron's beard. The oil represents the anointing. The anointing flows. That's why when talking about the gifts of the Holy Spirit in 1 Corinthians 12, Paul connects the operation of the gifts to the assembly of the saints. He says, you're the body of Christ, and the hand can't say to the eye, I have no need of you. The feet can't say to the hand, I have no need of you. No, you are all members of the body of Christ and members in particular. You come together and the oil flows. There is, a, there is a, an amazing presence of God that hits the place when you're assembled in one purpose and in one unity. Don't just attend also. I'll say, don't just attend church. Plug in. What has God gifted you with? What, has God ta- uh, what talent has God put on your life? What skill set has God given to you? Find a way that you can plug into the church, the church's program, so that you can, in your whatever God's gifted you with, that you can actually assist the advancement of God's church in that region. Don't just be a spectator. Get in the game. Nobody's called to be spectators. This is a great church that if I named, you'd know them all. You'd know the name. And uh, they actually have a system set up where if they see you attending their church after two months and you've not plugged in as a volunteer, they'll actually, and they see that you're a Christian and stuff, they'll actually approach you And they will ask you, we see that you've been attending this church for the last three months, two months. We want to ask you, where would you like to volunteer? They don't even say, would you like to? They say, where would you like to volunteer? And they're a growing church, so they don't even have enough seats to bring in all the people. So that's why they're doing this. If that person replies, "Ah, I'm not really interested in doing that, they literally pull out a, a piece of paper that has 10 other churches in the area that are good churches that they tell them you'll be better suited going there. Because we don't want spectators here. We need builders. We need people that are going to come along. Come along. Don't be a nursery Christian. Where it's pastor having to feed you with his little bottle every single week. There is a time, if you're just got saved, the Bible says as a newborn babe, desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. There's a time where you're just being fed. There's a time where, where, where that's okay. 
But if I was 18 and 20 years old and 22 years old and I was still going to my parents and saying, Dad, where's the Gerber's applesauce? Can you feed me some? Dad, uh, Mom, uh, can you, you know, I'm still breastfeeding at 25 years old. That's freaking weird. So we're not doing that. And there's a lot of Christians that are still breastfeeding and they're 20 years in the, in the faith. It's weird. It's weird. And you need to cut it out. You need to plug in. Quit being lazy. Quit being slothful. Be, the Bible says, God's redeemed you as a son, but he's also redeemed you as a servant. You're a bond servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And part of being a bond servant means serving the vision and purpose of Jesus. Number four. So number three is plug into your church's vision. Number four. Soul winning. Make a habit of sharing the gospel. That's not the job of the evangelist. The Bible says you, to, you are to do the work of an evangelist. Everyone is called to be a reconciler uh, 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 with a ministry of reconciliation. The Bible says we are all ambassadors of God on the earth. Not some of us, not the evangelist, the pastor, the prophet. Evangelism is not, hey, would you want to come to church with me? That's a good step, but it's not the fullness of it. Evangelism is you yourselves knowing how to articulate the gospel message and how to present it and bring an invitation to Christ on your own time. I went to a barber the other day. First time I sat under his scissors and I just sat there within three minutes. I got straight into it and I was with him for 35 minutes I preached the gospel to him, made him aware. God loves you. has a wonderful plan for your life. There's this thing called sin we need to get rid of. And I sat there and I did. I, make a ha- I don't just win souls when I'm, I have a mic in my hand in front of a pulpit and I have a, a big crowd before me. I win souls in my own private. That's not something I'm exempt from. If, as an evangelist, I'm actually going to be held more accountable on that end. Win souls. Be concerned for others. This is why people don't make a habit of winning souls. They're not concerned for others. And that's sad. The Bible says, look not only out for your own interests, but also for the interests of others. Esther was considerate, and she was concerned for others. She was in the palace, in the king's palace. When the word got to her that Haman was going to annihilate the Jews, she could have said, oh, that sucks for them. Thank God I'm a queen. Thank God I'm in the king's palace, not going to touch me. She could have easily have just dwelt on her blessed assurance and done nothing about it. But instead, she was concerned for others, and it drove her to pray and fast and do something on the earth. She was born for such a time as this. And what did it do? It, 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 it delivered an entire nation. Nehemiah was concerned for others. He saw the desolation of Jerusalem and the wall burnt down. What did he do? He prayed, fasted, and he went before the king and said, I got to go. And the Bible says God gave him favor and the king granted him all his requests and funded his entire project. Nehemiah was concerned for others. David was concerned for others. He could have stayed with his few sheep, playing a harp, making cheese on the weekends. Instead, he goes to the war field and he saw Goliath mouthing off and he took a shot at it. And he, 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 he solved the problem. He took Goliath's head off. Because he, he could have easily have said, oh, shoot, glad I'm not in the army. And went back home. He didn't. He was concerned for others. He knew that me killing Goliath was for the greater good. So let me deal with it. Stop pushing off the work of, evangelist to ev- the work of evangelism to everybody else. Stop pushing it off to the pastor. Stop pushing it off. You do the work of an evangelist. 
Jesus was concerned for others. Went to the woman at the well, who was a Samaritan woman, who Jews had no dealings with. Jesus could have been like, don't touch me. Instead, he, he was concerned for her. I mean, think of the gospel. He was in heaven clothed in glory. And the Bible says he laid aside his glory. Streets of gold. Angels worshiping him day and night. He didn't come to the earth because he needed help. He came because you needed help and I needed help. He was concerned for others. That's why he laid aside his temporary, he laid temporarily aside his comfort and his glory. Took upon himself the flesh of man, the form of a manservant. And he was obedient to the point of death. He got uncomfortable so you can be comfortable. Get uncomfortable. Soul winning is uncomfortable sometimes. Because you know you're stepping on their toes. You know that the gospel is offensive. It's offensive to those that are perishing. But to those that are seeking God and desire truth, it's the power of God unto salvation. Don't keep your lips trapped because you're afraid of offending. What if that person has been wanting to hear from God for all these years and you just opening your mouth would be the key to their freedom? Number four, be a soul winner. When you soul win, this is why it's a spiritual discipline that, that, that helps you. That if you won't be negligent in this, you'll actually maintain the fire on your altar. Is because when you're a soul winner, it solves most of your problems first and foremost. And when you're a soul winner, God speaks to soul winners. The Bible says he'll guide you into all truth by his spirit. Soul winning guarantees you don't fall into erroneous doctrine. Churches that don't soul win a lot of times get into weird doctrine. Churches that are given to soul winning, given to evangelism, I'd say 99.9% of them, the ones that I've been in contact with, 99.9% of them are not in weird doctrine. They don't fall into bad teaching, false teaching. They're, they, they, they're very closely knitted to the word of God. Soul winning guarantees that, because you're charged now to light fires everywhere you go. So because you're, you've taken on the responsibility to light fires, God will say, well, I need, to keep, I need to keep him lit. Number five, studying the word of God. Study to show thyself approved, a workman who need not be ashamed. You need to read the word every day. Don't wait for spare time to read. Set a time to read the word every single day. Paul told Timothy, if you instruct the brethren in these things, you'll be a good minister of Jesus Christ, nourished in the words of faith. The word of God nourishes you with faith. If your faith account is depleted, it's because you haven't added, you haven't added funds. The word of God is the currency that adds funds to your faith bank. Bible says, let no one despise your youth, but an example, be an example to believers in word, conduct, love, spirit, faith, and purity. Until I come, Paul told Timothy, give attention to reading. Give attention to exhortation and to doctrine. Don't neglect. So when you don't give attention to reading, you neglect the gift that is on the inside of you. Remember, the word of God is the rod of God. The Bible calls it the rod of his word. When you read the word, God is like stirring up the gift that is in you with the rod of his word, so that you guarantee you never become indifferent or apathetic or lackadaisical, but there's this fervor that's alive in your spirit. You, you literally fortify yourself against indifference. The Bible says, meditate on these things. Give yourself entirely to it so that your progress 
can become evident to all, which leads me to suggest that when you don't meditate on the word of God, you regress. The Bible says, my son, give attention to my word. Let it ever be before you. Fix it in your heart. Keep it before your eyes, for it is life to them that find it and healing to all their flesh. The word of God, on an added note, it'll actually put strength in your physical body. It's life to them that find it spiritually, and then it's health, strength to all your flesh. The word of God is truth. The Bible instructs us to put on the belt of truth. Now, the belt of truth, when studying the armor of God, in that, when Paul's referring to the armor, it's actually the Roman armor that you, they used to carry. And the belt held everything together. So the helmet of, uh, of salvation, the breastplate of righteousness, the, uh, the preparation of the gospel of peace, the shoes of the gospel, all of that was held together by the belt of truth. So if you don't have the word in your heart, the belt of truth, the rest of the armor, it ain't going to work. You won't know your righteousness, so you won't be able to put on the, the breastplate of righteousness. And if you don't have, just like in, a, in modern day, you put on a belt to hold yourself together so your pants don't fall off. If you don't put on the belt of truth daily, you don't read and have an intake of the word. Jesus said that man liveth not by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. If you don't do that daily... You, you're, you're, you're going to fall apart. The word of God keeps you together. The word of God keeps you intact. The word of God guarantees, because it's truth, if you don't know the truth, you'll fall for anything. If you don't know the truth, anything will look like truth. If I don't know what New York looks like, they can take me to Burlington, Vermont, and tell me that's New York. And I'd say, wow, it's a little underwhelming, but I guess this is New York. When you don't know the truth... You'll fall for anything. But when you know the truth, you have the sword of the spirit to cut down the lies of the devil and the shield of faith, because faith comes by hearing the word of God. The shield of faith to extinguish every fiery dart the devil might throw your way. Jesus said, build your house on my word. He that hears these words and doesn't do anything about it is like a man who built his house upon sand. It falls apart. But whoever hears my word and does it, he's built his house upon the rock and he'll never fall apart. He'll always be found standing. The word of God is the only foundation upon which a Christian can build his life. All other foundation is sinking sand. Sinking sand. The Bible says in Colossians 2.6, Therefore, if you've received Christ Jesus, so walk in him. How? how? Paul goes on to say how you walk in him. You should be rooted and built up in him and established in the faith. And faith comes by hearing the word of God. So you get rooted and built up. David said in Psalm 1, how blessed is the man whose meditation is on the word day and night. He'll be like a tree firmly planted by the riverbank. He'll be like a tree. He won't be like a little shrub that's tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine. He'll be like a tree. A firmly planted tree that even in hurricane force winds, the tree doesn't move. The tree is not uprooted. The tree stands. Why? Because its roots run deep down. And it bears fruit in every season. Why? Because it's not waiting for rain to come. The roots are tapping into an unseen source of water. An unseen source of power. That's what the word of God does. The word of God in in. In the face of famine, in the face of calamity, in the face of world tribulation, when you get the word in you, you're, build, you're rooting yourself deep down and you're drawing 
from another source, which is the power of God, so that you're bearing fruit in every season, regardless of what the world is going through. A wordless Christian is a Christian that has signed up for roller coaster Christianity, up and down and all around. A wordless Christian is a Christian that has signed up for disaster, for instability. A wordless, wordless Christian has signed up for a up and down Christianity. But when you get in the word, you, you maintain stability. Number six, listening to 30, 30 minutes to one hour of good preaching per day. And I say good preaching because it's not good enough. You don't just put on anyone. Be, beware who you listen to. Don't listen to a preacher like this that's going to build your faith and then go on to someone else that's just going to preach some hyper-grace type of message that tells you you don't have to do anything. You know, God's grace is enough. doesn't matter if you read every day. Don't put all those things on you. You're, you're going to be a confused person and uh, it's, you're going to end up worse off than you were. Find preachers that are of one accord with the word of God. That preach biblical doctrine. Paul said in Romans 16, 25, Now unto him who is able to establish you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ. So you establish yourself in life. You maintain spiritual growth in life when you expose yourself to the preaching of Jesus Christ. Because faith comes by hearing the word of God. So not only can you just read the word out loud and gain Healing for yourself, uh, sorry, faith yourself, because faith comes by hearing the word of God. When you listen to Bible-based preaching, your faith is growing, like many of you watching right now. Ezekiel 2.2 says, the spirit entered me as he spoke to me, and he set me on my feet. Set me on my feet. When you listen to good preaching, it puts a wind behind you. Carries you. Titus 1.9 says it this way, you should hold fast the faithful word as you've been taught and preached to, that you may be able by sound doctrine exhort and convict those who contradict. With advancement of technology these days, you're going to have to make a decision. Either I'm going to, either I'm going to, um, I'm going to use this YouTube platform and I'm going to use Instagram, I'm going to use podcasts and all that to listen to some heathen Talk about who knows what, or I'm going to use it to get the word in me at every opportunity I have. Instead of on your 15, 20, 30, some of you have an hour commute to work every morning. Instead of just putting on the radio, you know, Q92 or something, 92.5 FM, instead of putting on, um, you know, Shakira or something like that, or some useless mixtape, why don't you put on the word? A podcast that's actually going to build you up and be beneficial to eternal matters and add to your faith. Instead of building up nothing, things that the Bible says in uh, second, 1 Corinthians 2 that the fire is going to burn the works and people will suffer loss. Instead of building nothing, build up your spirit, man. With the word of God, which the Bible says, your faith is like precious gold. Add to your faith. The Bible says, giving all diligence. Add to your faith virtue, the virtue knowledge. So that's what good preaching does. Preaching, it, 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 it unravels the mysteries of the word. 
And when you add, that's how you can add to your faith. Peter says, add to your faith knowledge. So knowledge adds to your faith. Knowledge increases your faith. Knowledge of the word builds up your faith. Sit under good preachers. Number seven, and I'll finish with this, regular fellowship with faith people. This is important. As iron sharpens iron, so a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. Make it a point to have regular fellowship with people of like mind and like faith. Hang around people that are lions. Paul said, fulfill my joy by being like-minded towards one another and being of one mind, one accord, and one in the same love. So find people that are walking in the same direction you're walking in. How can two walk in the same direction unless they be agreed? So agree on the direction. Find people of faith that are looking to increase, that are looking to build up, that are looking to do something of value on the earth, that are looking to win souls, that are looking, that, that are actually adding wood to the fire of their spiritual life and aren't just sitting and coasting through life. People that have an urgency to get the gospel. When you do that, you find people that are walking in that same direction. You now have an accountability partner. And as iron sharpens iron, you're going to sharpen the... He'll sharpen you, you'll sharpen them. The Bible says that uh, if, if one man falls and he's alone, he's got no hope. But if he falls and he has someone to pick him up, then he has hope. You hang around people that are dead weight in life, you'll never rise to your God-given potential. You'll always be dragging your feet. You'll always be frustrated because you, you know in your spirit where you can be, but because of certain influences in your life, they're not pushing you. Find people that are going to light a flame under your rear end. Find people that are going to challenge you to strive, more, to, to move forward. Not people that are content with sitting Hang around people of faith. Hang around people who, if you hang around people who drink, you'll start drinking. You hang around people that do drugs, you'll probably do drugs. You hang around people that are loose in their living. They don't keep a firm check over, they're, they're loose in holiness. They, they let their eyes wander. They watch anything on their TV. They listen to anything. on. You'll end up adapting that same lifestyle. Hang around people that are quick-tempered and angry. angry. You'll be quick-tempered and angry. The Bible says, make no friendship with an angry man, lest you learn his ways. You'll learn his ways. Who you hang around with, you've enrolled in the school to learn what they have. So you can hang around knuckleheads, and you'll learn a bunch of knucklehead things to do. Or you hang around people of faith, and then receive impartation from them. Impartation is real. Impartation is what God put in one vessel, gets transferred to another vessel. Paul said that we are to stir up the gift of God, which I... Uh, which, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Paul imparted spiritual things to Timothy. He actually told the Corinthian church, I'm sending you my son Timothy, who is able to do everything that I do in every church that I go to. Timothy received the very DNA of Paul, and he had the same type of ministry and the same effectiveness in ministry because of it, because of impartation. Jesus imparted boldness into his disciples. The Sanhedrin said these men are uneducated, untrained men, but we perceive them as having been with Jesus because they're boldness. Jesus imparted something into the disciples. Paul imparted spiritual gifts to Timothy. Elijah imparted spiritual things to Elisha 
that when Elisha came and started his ministry, they said the spirit of Elijah doth rest upon Elisha. Meaning we recognize Elisha's spirit in this guy. And Elisha was the only one that said, Elijah, if everyone... If everyone's abandoned you, I'm not. I'm clinging you. I'm clinging to you until until God takes you up in a whirlwind of fire. Moses imparted the spirit of wisdom into Joshua. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter uh, 29, I believe it is, or or 31, he laid hands on him and imparted the spirit of wisdom into Joshua. And that's why in Joshua one, God spoke to Joshua and said, "As I was with Moses, so will I be with you," because what was in Moses. Because of Joshua's close association with Moses, what was in Moses was now in Joshua. Impartation is real. So now, those are the seven spiritual disciplines every Christian must never neglect. I want to pray now that God puts on you the spirit of diligence to actually upkeep these things. The hand of the diligent shall bear rule, the Bible says. But the hand of the lazy man will be put to forced labor. So if you're lazy in these things, you'll be put to forced labor. The Bible says the lazy man is like a door that turns on its hinges. It turns, it turns, but it doesn't go anywhere. So is a lazy man on his bed. He doesn't go anywhere. Tries to go in different directions every time, but it never leads him anywhere. God doesn't want that to be your story. Seest thou a man diligent in his work? He'll stand before kings. The Bible says diligence is man's precious possession. Paul said, know ye not in a race that all run? but only one can receive the prize, run in such a way that you may obtain it. This is the way. These seven disciplines is the way to run if you want to obtain the high prize of the call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul says everyone, he's talking about natural athletes. When they compete, they're very disciplined and diligent in their approach to their training because they want to obtain a perishable crown. Tell me who won the Olympic gold medal for sprints in the 18th or in the fifth Olympics. You can't. It's a perishable crown. Nobody remembers their name. Nobody remembers who they are. It's a perishable crown. They had a moment of glory, but that was it. They work four years, train four years to run 10 seconds in a sprint, in a 100 meter sprint. And they sweat and they work daily for that. Paul says, they do that for a perishable crown. How much more you who are doing it for an imperishable crown, a crown of glory that Jesus has reserved for us in heaven when he appears, he'll lay on our heads a crown and we'll just take it off and cast it at his feet and say, Lord, we only did what you empowered us to do in the first place. Therefore, Paul says, I run not with uncertainty. I know what to do. That's what I did today. I gave you what to do. He said, I fight not as one beating the air. I'm not air boxing. I'm not shadow boxing. I'm hitting the target. And I discipline my body into subjection, lest after I've preached to others, I should be disqualified. I'm going to pray right now that grace be released to you to be diligent in these spiritual disciplines so that you are not disqualified. You will finish your race well. You will fight the good fight. You will finish the race. You will finish the course. You will, f- you will end well in Jesus' name. You will gain spiritual consistency. You will become a strong Christian.
You will do great exploits on the earth. You will be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. You will be a pillar of righteousness in the land in Jesus' name. You will not be an up and down Christian. You will be a Christian that lifts others up. You will run not from the bottom of the barrel. You will run from the overflow, the oil of God that he places on you. In Jesus' name. Father, I ask you right now, release on them the grace to be diligent. Release on them the spirit of diligence. In Jesus' name, give them grace. Paul said, I am what I am by the grace of God. Grant them grace to be conformed. To be conformed. Not to be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be conformed to the pattern of your word. Raise up strong men and women from this broadcast. Pillars of righteousness in the land. The planting of the Lord that you might be glorified. Men and women anointed of the Holy Ghost that aren't prayer projects for their community. Constantly asking to be kept in prayer. But Father, people that are doing the praying to bring deliverance to the captives. In Jesus' name. And I thank you for it. I feel the anointing so strong right now. I believe many of you, there's over 200 of you watching right now on Facebook and YouTube. And I believe many of you, this was a life-changing broadcast. This gave you direction. You've wanted to be a strong Christian. Today, you know how, you know how now. And God did it. I, I prayed this before. I don't want to just reveal what it takes to be a strong Christian, but that power would be released in you. Power would be released in your very spirit, man, to effortlessly engage in these disciplines that would result in you being a firebrand in the hand of God. Hallelujah. In Jesus' name. Stay connected with us by visiting us on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook by searching at TJ Malkanji. Or visit us online, www.salvationnow.ca. God bless you, and until next time.